So I, I have a question for you. Yeah. You know that song by Train called Hey Soul Sister? Yeah. What's with the lyric, my heart is going to beat right out my untrimmed chest? It's the weirdest thing ever. Is anyone, like, are you supposed to trim? I mean, he's, he's a man. Am I supposed to trim my chest? People do. Is that a thing? Trim it or shave it? Like, under what circumstances is that required? With little clippers. Really? Like, you have, are you like, a, is someone a Sasquatch in order to need to do that? <laughs> I feel like I'm actually not a good person for you to talk to about this, seeing as you're sort of my N of one. Right. Okay. I've just always wondered. And I thought, you know. But I mean, I think you should ask people on Twitter about chest, chest trimming. You're an expert. Like you have a PhD. And so I go to you with all the hard questions. I don't have a PhD in chest grooming for men. Okay. Expertise implies deep knowledge in one specific area. <laughs> Thank you for defining that for me. I appreciate it. Is this the intro <laughs> to our podcast? It's the cold open. Oh Other God. question: Why you no use Squadcast, bro? <laughs> Don't you out me right now like this. I'm, I'm like, all right. So we're going to record Zen Founder. Send me your Squadcast link. And you looked around like ashamed, kind of looked, and I'm like, what? What's wrong? I am ashamed. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, guys. You, uh, you, we'll we'll get you set up with that this afternoon. I gotta be honest podcast listeners. <laughs> it, it's not for lack of preparation or valuing this process. But I think because so much of the last few podcasts, like the last few months of podcasts have really come out of like, in the moment reflection on what's happening right around me. Sometimes they're recorded in like, 10 minute increments between consulting clients. And sometimes they're like, so all that to say, Zen Founder needs a little bit of working on the business, not in the business. Like a little bit of like, oh yeah, I've been meaning to get on Squadcast for like three months. And, you know, I just haven't done that yet. <laughs> <laughs> if only someone could talk to me about prioritization and I don't know how to calmly get things done. How to get your shit done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's how to keep your shit together. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. For those who don't know, Squadcast is the software that I use to record all of my podcasts, and it records remotely on both ends. And we invested in them through TinySeed, and so um, it's just a really superior product to pretty much anything else on the market for recording high-quality audio, and so... Uh, I had suggested to Sherry. She's like, hey, that sounds great. You know, and, and, and I met those guys and they were fantastic. They I know. sponsored um, a podcast conference that I was part of or that we were both part of. Yeah. And we, we went on their podcast. And so I'm just busting your chops. I know that you actually want to get over there. I, I, I'm aware. I'm just listening. <laughs> Dear audience, this is what it sounds like when Rob Holly gives me a hard time. Mm -hmm. It's about as bad as it gets. <laughs> well, that was, oh my God. What was that noise about? 
We're going to, we're going to let that lie. All right. Thanks for coming back on the podcast that you started and abandoned, by the way. Abandoned? Um, you kicked me off after 200. <laughs> you're like, hey, jump. You, I think you're saying the same things over and over. Clearly, you don't know anything about mental Get health. Off. So yeah, exactly. You're, you're kind of just making it up. Are you even a founder anymore? I think was one of the last things that you asked me on the podcast. Right, right. Uh, I'm sorry. You're not successful enough for this podcast. But, you know, honestly, how how is it going? Cause it's been a while since you've been on. And I know that all of the changes that we've been talking a lot about on the podcast have had a lot of impact on you. I think last time you were on, we talked about the decision to postpone microconf and just how heavy that was for you. It was very hard. And now you're kind of now having like a second set of ponderings about those kinds of things as we're watching the pandemic unfold and change. How's your, how's your like stress level in the midst of these big decisions? I'd say like my stress level is totally manageable. I'd say it's relatively low, but it's, there's this uncertainty that's hanging and I can see it in the distance and I'm doing a good job of, of not like letting that consume me, but it's also, I don't like uncertainty, right? I think that's why a lot of us become entrepreneurs is so we can kind of control present and potentially try to control the future. And it's really hard because we can do all the research and all the thinking. And I can talk with the really smart people that I work with at MicroConf and at Tiny Seed, but we just don't know what's going to happen 90 days from now or 120 days from now. We don't know if COVID is going to come back with with a vengeance and things are going to shut down again. They already are in certain parts of the country or or what that's going to look like. And so that blanket uncertainty has been a real challenge in thinking through what do we do? What do we do with these events we have in September, October? So yeah, that's been a challenge. It's it's tough because, you know, there's this, this old thing, I think Paul Graham said it, where he said, developers want to work on interesting, hard problems. What they don't want to work on is uninteresting, hard problems. And then he starts defining them. And he's like, interesting problems are complex algorithms. You know, it's, to me, these days, my entrepreneurial hard problems are like thinking through how to market something or how to create something of real value or how to do whatever. The uninteresting hard problems he spoke about is coding against someone else's API that's really buggy because it's super frustrating and it's not productive and it feels like a waste of time and it's uncertain. And so I think that's these days, it's like, I want to work on hard, interesting problems rather than think about what conference should we move around or potentially postpone or whatever, right? Sure. Scheduling things is not your favorite problem to solve. No, and I'm not saying that I shouldn't be doing it or that, I mean, it has to get done and, and me and the team are thinking about it, but it is, it, I'll say it's one of the less interesting day-to-day things that I, that I think about. Even it's less interesting, but it's super important, right? And it has to be thought through. Well, I also think about you and the, the rhythm of your years. I mean, you've been doing microcomp for 10 years plus ish. Yeah. Just about 10 years. Yep. The spring is sort of built around microconf. And then in the last few years, as you've added the conference in Europe, like there's the fall and and just the rhythm of your life is around these events. And so I'm just imagining that it's this sort of weird adjustment to feel like you have kind of an unanchored schedule. Yeah, a little bit, because I always look forward to those in-person events. Anchoring and rhythm is a good way to think about it. I also think of it as something I both look forward to and also dread a little bit. And the dread is purely this social anxiety that I have, you know, but, but I look forward to it and like, I'm going to see all my people, like all my, I was going to say like business friends, but really it's like the majority of my real life friends, I wind up being at Microconf and it's a, it's a truly a bummer and it was devastating when it happened. And now I'm starting to heal from that, but it's just a bummer to think, man, when will we be able to all be in a room again? Yeah. You've have 
designed an event that gathers all of your significant people, minus like your mother, in one room a couple times a year. And so it's a pretty significant point of connection and like sanity and community for you. And for lots of people, I know a lot of people feel like like that about microconf. And I have a couple of events that I'm part of that feel like that for me. So yeah, it's a it's a huge sort of touchstone that's not lost, but is indefinite, is, is smushy around when you'll be able to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, I mean, we're already looking at 2021 plans and thinking about how that, so it, it'll be back. I mean, this is an anomaly and it's a, you know, I view it as something that will, will be done and we'll look back and say, man, that was a tough year. But while you're in it, you just kind of do the best you can to think through it. In the meantime, it sounds like you're rocking and rolling on Tiny Seed. Batch two is strongly underway. Yeah. Batch two is rocking. Got some great companies in there. Funded 13 companies this time around. and Including Squadcast, which I know, I know, I will be shamed into joining. Excellent. <laughs> Much to my advantage because I know it's amazing. Yeah. And we're in the midst of ramping up to raise fund two. We have now funded 23 companies. Fund one is for all intents invested at this point. And so we are gearing up for that. Anar's already started having calls. We have early commits much quicker progress. I mean, he was saying like last time it took us, I think, four months to get to a number. And we did that in two and a half weeks or three weeks or something this time. So it's just a completely different, different ball game because of it's because of the, of the brand and because we've proven it out and because you look at the companies we funded and it's that thing of, is this going to work? You know, and then two batches in, yeah, this is going to work. There's so much more data now to suggest that this is a great model. Right. So actually, as a side note, if you're listening to this and you have been interested in investing in early stage B2B SaaS companies that are in the microconf community. It's building real products for real customers who pay them real money, right? It's not the Silicon Valley startups. We are raising fun too. And if you go to tinyseed.com slash invest, you can enter your info. You have to be an accredited investor. What does that mean? Like for a newbie investor? Yeah. Like if you're in the United States, you have to either have a net worth of $1 million, not, not including your primary residence or I believe it's income of, you can, you can Google this, but it's like, if you're single, it's income of $200,000 a year. Or if you're married, it's income of $300,000 a year for the past two years. And you expect to have that for the next year. So it, it is definitely, that's the law, right? It's we. So you have to jump through some hoops, but if you have the dollar, then you can uh, invest in the next round. Yeah. And internationally, that's, you know, the, the accreditation laws are different, but, but the idea with Tiny Seed is really to, to fund these early stage companies, to accelerate them with mentorship which again, it appears to be working like we thought. And then it's a way to diversify, diversify funds across a bunch of different companies instead of having to chase down all that deal flow yourself. Yeah, commit to one potential unicorn. Right. Well, it's it's been so neat to watch this all unfold for you because I we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I, I just love this this business for you because it is such a great accumulation of everything that you've done up to this point, both launching and starting your own businesses, as well as the the podcast, the blog back in the day when people still blogged, but all of the ways that you've been involved in both your own development and then also developing other founders. So Tiny Seed feels like such a great way for you to get to use all of those skills and expertise to mentor and help support others. And I get to be lucky enough to be a mentor as well, which is fantastic. Yeah, it does feel like a natural extension of what I've been doing for the past 15 years. 
like you said, it was the blog and then the book and then the podcast and then the conference and then the online community with Microsoft Connect and Tiny Seed is just like, oh, here's another option for people, you know, if you want some funding and mentorship beyond everything we already mostly give away for free as much as possible. Obviously, in-person events, we don't, but it really is my, it's my through line of my career. Like I've, I started all these apps and did all this stuff, but like, how does Beach Towels relate to an SEO keyword tool relate to an email service provider? Not, not really. They're just companies. But this does feel like a culmination of something. This and MicroConf, to be honest, feel like such a culmination of, of my entire career. Not that it's over or that I'm backing off or anything, but I just, I feel like I'm going to do those two things plus the podcast forever. Well, you're also in a different phase, right? There's this phase of not... You're not building from scratch, like the era of sort of scrappy is gone and the era of like more well-established with a deeper foundation is part of the the developmental phase that you're in right now. And I think, you know, again, this sort of concept of mentorship and investment in other people that's born out of the investments that have been made in you and all that you've accomplished up to this point. And I know we've been, when talking within our family about some of the people that have invested heavily in us as people and as professionals. And I think it's been really like a privilege to sort of recognize the investment that's been made in us and then make the decision to be able to pay that forward to other people. Yeah, for sure. I think with a lot of people, you know, that does start with your parents. And of course, I'm like super thankful how they work to to provide for us and to make it was like never a question of whether we would go go to college. You know, that was just a foregone conclusion. Yeah, we did a whole episode about the way that your dad really supported your entrepreneurial journey. It was a part of the Founder Origins story series a couple of years ago. I'll put the number in the show notes if people want to check that out. But you've been talking a lot about a mentor who was really significant to you in your professional life who recently passed away, or I guess passed away six, nine months ago, a man named Gene Ravisa. Yeah, he owned an electrical contractor company called Cupertino Electric out in the Bay Area. And it's so interesting to see the impact that he had on my entire family, like me and my my dad and my brother and my whole my whole family and my mom as well. But like my dad was basically, he left LA and moved up like with no job and poor and just all the stuff. And I guess this would have been in the late 50s or 60s, probably, probably the early 60s. And he became an electrician and started going through the union program. And he wound up being just kind of discovered by this guy, Gene Revisa, who really took him under his wing and trained my dad to run crews and to be a journeyman and then to be a foreman and then to be a general foreman and then to be a project manager. And really a lot of my dad's career and what he learned was from Gene Revisa, who was not that much older than my dad. You know, he's maybe 10 years, maybe 10 years older, but he had bought this electrical contractor. It was super small. It's actually an appliance store at the time, and it did some electrical work on the side, and he didn't want to do the appliance stuff, so he started doing it. So he was a self-made multimillionaire at a time when that was, you didn't do that on the internet. He ran crews. Where that was exceptional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say it's easier today to do that, you know? (laughs) I mean, he, yeah, it was incredible. So then when I was, I mean, I knew him from the time I was pretty young because he had such an impact on my dad. And Gene used to say I bought, Cupertino Electric for twelve thousand dollars in nineteen fifty something, and like when I left, me because I worked there for a year and a half after college, they were doing six hundred million dollars a year in revenue with I think it was eight hundred employees or some number in there. I mean, it was just incredible, just building it over decades and decades. And I essentially was his apprentice for almost a year. Yeah, this was sort of your your path before I came and derailed your life and 
you started in technology, Gene had sort of tapped you to be part of this executive training program and was in essence sort of grooming you to help run this company eventually. Yeah, I was um, on the executive management path at the company and they had a training program and I was a known quantity and I had gotten an electrical engineering degree, which made me kind of a, just a, a good fit for it. And they knew my dad, knew my family and everything. And so, yeah. Then you married this girl who's like, nah. You know, I honestly had real trepidation about it, but was having a tough time to making that decision to break those ties because it was really difficult. It was so known, right? It was known. Well, it was a path. It's like, hey, 600 million bucks, you could be the president of this thing in 15 years. You just work your way up. That was really appealing to me. And I, I wouldn't have been very happy knowing what we know now. But I thought, you know, I wanted to run a company. Didn't realize when I was 20 and 21, whatever, coming out of college, like, oh, I could just start my own, which is why I ended up doing that. It's, it's the same end goal, just accomplished in a different way. And I would have been much less happy. The construction business is so, so cutthroat. But anyways, yeah, you helped me think through that decision. You didn't, I know we, you jokingly said I derailed you. I convinced you. It wasn't that. I, I really didn't at a certain point, want to do it, but I just didn't know how to really make that decision. You didn't know what else to do. Yeah, right. And so during that year under Gene Revisa, though, I just, he was the one of the few people I ever knew who owned a business, who owned a company. I wasn't around people who owned companies. I mean, what was he like? Because I only met him, I don't know, a handful of times. And obviously we were quite young then, but he, he just seemed to have this really charismatic quality about him and also a lot of warmth. Yeah. And that's the thing. There's a book called the, I don't even remember what it's called. It's the charisma myth or the powers of charisma or something. And it's like, you have charisma when you have warmth, presence, and power. And the warmth is being very nice and being interested and shaking hands and saying the name and being engaged and asking questions. Presence is when you are present with that person and you're not looking over their shoulder. You're not looking at your watch. You're not not present. You're engaged. Right. Watching what's happening on the other side of the room. Or... Exactly. People can tell that you care. And then power, this was an interesting one that I hadn't realized or hadn't never thought about, but it's like when you have power, you can easily not be present for people and you don't need to be warm. But if you couple those two things with some type of power you have in a situation, it makes you seem extremely, you don't have to do this, but you're doing this by choice. It makes you seem extremely charismatic. Junior Visa did, never read this book. He just did it naturally right? We ran a company. So for 50 years or something, so he, or maybe it was 40 years, but he knew that he had the power in any situation. He didn't flaunt it. He didn't throw it around, but he always had warmth and presence with everyone. And he taught me that during that year, we would walk around and he would say, you have to treat everyone. We're all on the same team. Like the person who got hired today, the junior executive assistant, or the person who's emptying the trash, like he would go up to them and be like, hi, my name's Gene. What's yours? Oh, where'd you go to school? You know what I mean? And he didn't have to do that, but he knew that he was genuinely interested A, but he knew that that's what it took to build a good culture and a good group of people. And he modeled that. He modeled that so other people would do it, even if he didn't say it out loud like he did to me. So he had a profound impact on me because I didn't know, you know, when you see the news, if all you see is the news about what it is to be a businessman, to be rich. I mean, he was a wealthy individual. He built, again, self-made. You can kind of conflate wealth with dishonesty or being evil or not treating people well. Yeah, selfish and abuse of others. I mean, it doesn't, it, you don't have to scratch very far below the surface of any headline to see that the wealth and power can be incredibly corrupting. Yeah, we look at Uber, right? And, and Amazon, how they treat their employees. I mean, there's just a lot of news stories about these big companies. And Gene was a counterexample of that 
to me. It actually was an epiphany that as I worked with them, I was like, oh, you can be successful. You can build wealth. You can build a great company and still treat people right. And that was a model, a great model for me because it allowed me to see this as possible. And I think for someone like you, if you'll permit me, where you have such a an incredible engineering oriented mind that's very systematic, it would be relatively easy for you to see people as a I don't as a piece of a system, not not as a means to an end, because you've always had a, a kindness that and a generosity that's part of you, but but to really maybe be like a little bit utilitarian about how the pieces of a business or a company work together. And I feel like Gene's influence really, really shaped you to to see people much more individually and importantly than that. Yeah. When I started blogging, the first blog post I ever wrote was like, so it begins. I'm going to be blogging here about blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares. Second blog post is called The People Business. And it's a story. And I left it. So I've, I've since removed some of the early blog posts for SEO purposes and they were just, A, no one visited them. They had no links and they were terrible. This one I've left up like purely because I want to reread it every now and again. But Gene used to tell me, he'd say, what business are we in? And I'd say the electrical contracting business or, you know, construction. And he'd say, no, we're in the people business. And I'd say, what does that mean? And he'd said this to everyone. This was his, this was his thing. He said, any business you're in, what matters is the people. When I say that today, we have all heard that now in these books and these whatever podcasts, and there are people experts everywhere. And there, there is stuff. We know the importance of that today, especially in startup culture. But when Gene was saying this to me in the late 80s, and then in the mid to late 90s, and basically had had discovered this himself on his own, running his own business, like this was not necessarily a uh, commonly held belief with high-powered business people. So the people business is really the other thing I, I have always, always remembered. Do you think of him often? I don't. Probably once or twice a year. And my dad and I will have a conversation about him. More than that, though, I think his imprint is on me every day. I think that I was heavily shaped by that year. I shadowed him for a year. We would hang out an hour. He was in the office, I think, three or four days a week. Yeah, you basically just followed him around. I did. And it wasn't all day, every day, but you learn things. He would say, all right, this is how I go through mail. I mean, he would literally say, like, here's a skill. If I get a magazine, I'll flip a table of contents, anything interesting, anything, you know, and then I'll chuck it. Like, you don't read every page. It's not efficient, but you also can't ignore this stuff. And then he'd go through the mail and he'd be like, this, I'm going to delegate. And here's why, you know, he taught me that, that fundamental. And those were just, those were just basic executive skills, basically. But he also had that whole people side and the way to think about running a business in a way that I think was counter, not only counterintuitive, maybe, but counter to the common examples that I saw around me. This was in the Bay Area. Countercultural at that point. Yeah. So this whole idea of mentorship, I mean, I've always liked helping and teaching, but I do think that being around Gene influenced my willingness or desire to go start blogging, to go start podcasting, to start mentoring and advising. Like I think the through line was absolutely impacted by him that in the early days, you need a lot of mentorship. I think, I think it's super helpful to have someone who is mentoring or advising. And then I think as you gain some success or some knowledge or some experience, it's time to think about starting to give back to be a mentor once you've had some success. And I don't mean you need to go on Twitter and spout, oh, I know everything because I've started a startup and we're at 100K MRR or whatever. No, it's bragging at a certain point. I mean, it, it can be, but it can be helpful if you share it. That's not mentorship? Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> Actually, no, I don't think that mentorship happens on Twitter. I mean, of anybody, maybe Patrick McKenzie approaches 
some semblance of mentorship on Twitter because of just the sheer amount of like helpful information and kindness that he spouts. But like mentorship is very specific to helping someone develop. It doesn't happen on Twitter. Yeah, I think mentors can and and do have a profound impact. (laughs) And I think that if you're out there and you have knowledge and you feel like you can pass that along, what do you call it? Paying it forward, right? Yeah. Like, I think it's, it's something that, that folks should be thinking about these days. It's a valuable use of your time. I think also like taking the time to really think about your mentors and who's shaped you and paying homage is a nice way to get started. Hey, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. (laughs) This is great. Thanks for inviting me on. I know I keep asking you to come on. And you're just like, no, sorry, I'm all booked up for the next several months with interviews. So. <laughs> that's that's always what I say. <laughs> it's great to be back. Bye. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.